how can I show up being who I am and do the thing I'm doing and be that on fire and that in love at the same time? What is that dance? (laughs) How do I do that? Self-leadership can be lonely. It's hard to do the thing no one else wants to do, that no one else is willing to do. But you are not alone. There are others dancing through the fight and laughing as they lead. Let's find them, swap stories, and live through this together. Welcome to How I Live Through This. I'm your host, Anne Roach, and I'm really glad you're here. How do you get to know the heart of someone without ever having met them in real life or breathed the same air? When I first met Anne Roach, she was a student in an online workshop I was leading. And even though we were not in the same room physically, I immediately recognized her by the spark and how she showed up. If you ask Anne to introduce herself to you, she'll tell you that she's a life leadership coach and a podcaster with a passion for racial justice. I know Anne to be someone who shows up full of fire and light. Hello, Anne Roach. It's a joy and a privilege to get the chance to talk to you today. Oh, the privilege is all mine, Bernadette. Thank you so much. (laughs) I am thrilled that you're finally launching a podcast Mm. to talk about the things that matter to you. And I'm looking forward to learning from all of the people you speak to, but I'm also looking forward to this time with you, just getting to know you a bit better and sort of understanding your backstory. So thank you for for giving me the time. (laughs) Anything you ever want, anytime, Bernadette, I'm there. (laughs) So when I was thinking about how to kick off our time together today, I was thinking about when we met and not just when we met, but since we've met really, you know, there are some people you meet that you wish you'd known all your life. And and you're one of those people for me, but since I didn't know you when you were growing up, (laughs) I'm, I'm taking this chance to turn back the clock now. And I'd love to know what you were like as a kid. And I, I always find starting with a simple question like, Tell me about your first day at school. Can you remember your first day at school? You know, it's funny. I don't have, my memories aren't so much specific moments. I'm terrible with dates and ages and chronology. I remember very clearly how I felt at the time in in school, in grammar school, in high school, in college, those were different feelings. But I remember those days, I was a very internal, I was very present internally. And so I remember how I felt there. How did you feel there? Well, it's funny, I was just talking to somebody about this the other day. I actually remember it must have been second grade because I moved school for third grade. So I rem- I mean, now that you're asking me the questions, I'm, I'm having memories, moments of, 
you know, I remember learning how to tell time. I remember my teacher, Mrs. House, and she would always reward us with a book. You could pick a book out of the box if you, you know, got a hundred on, on something. Um, so I remember those kinds of things, but one of my earliest memories in school was standing on the playground. We, I'm, I'm only 52, you know, but I grew up without a television. <laughs> I say that I say I'm mm-hmm. only 52 because, you know, my parents made the choice not to have a TV in the house um, until I was quite a bit older. I didn't know that that was a thing. Uh, actually, you and I had a conversation about advertisements on television, but when I grew up, I didn't see any of that. Uh, I had a grandmother, my one of my favorite people growing up was my grandmother. And she, um, later on in my life, she, she moved down the street from us and I would go over there and we'd watch, she'd let me watch television. But in second grade, we did not have a TV in the house. And I remember the kids standing around on the playground talking about the Brady Bunch. And they were talking about it and I pretended that I had seen it. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting. I don't know, you know, I felt that I was on the outside always, always at home and at school. And I remember I I wanted to be part of the conversation, but I didn't want to be like them necessarily. I just wanted to be part of it. And so I totally lied through my teeth. And they were quickly suspicious. And I don't know if there had been, um, I I don't know if they had uh, caught on earlier that I didn't know something or that I didn't have a television or something. It's very possible. I was, I lied about a lot of things for a lot of my childhood (laughs) and I was not very clever at it. So... (laughs) Hey, um, what, what yeah. do you think it was that was, well, there's so much to unpack there, but what do you think it was <laughs> that, that um, made you want to lie to them if you didn't want to be like them? I think, and this is a quick answer, so I haven't had time to think about it, but I think it's that I wanted to, to be able to say something. I always mm-hmm always had a voice, (laughs) always, and was always trying to use it. So Mm -hmm. yes, I always felt on the outside of things, but I never felt like I, I never felt like I was, like I should be shut up. I just, it didn't occur to me to not, you know, put myself in the middle of something and have an opinion on it. Well, this oh is God. what I mean when I say <laughs> you show up with fire and light and just such a spark um, oh, that is incredible, it just creates this incredible energy, even in a virtual room, which is the only place I've ever I experienced know. being around you. Crazy. You had uh, a Brady Bunch at home. You came from a Brady Bunch size family, near enough. I mean, no, not quite, but you, you came from a big family. There were five of us, yeah. Yeah. When I think about big families, I think about everybody feeling like they belong, but in actual fact, that often isn't 
true for everyone who's mm. in the family. And you've said you felt on the outside, even at home. Talk very to me much. about that. Yeah, very much. I, I, my whole family, from my viewpoint, again, you know, I'm one of five, but we all have different stories and we're all very close. Um, but we all had different experiences. But from my viewpoint back then, I felt like I had been dropped into a family and I didn't, I, I felt like they all had a secret language and I didn't understand what they were talking about. They're all very creative, artistic people, very, very smart. My parents weren't like anybody else's parents I knew. I mean, we talk about the Brady Bunch, there were five of us, but that's, and, and, Mr. Brady apparently was an architect, as was my own father, mm -hmm. but that is where that stopped. <laughs> there was nothing, there was no resemblance to anything I had ever seen anywhere else in my family. My father was older, he was an older father, and um, he was from Ireland. And so I don't think I really understood until actually recently the immigrant aspect mm -hmm. of my upbringing I just did it did that didn't really occur to me because we did it's not that we looked different as much as we just were different um and and my mother was very protective of that she was very um she was not trying to fit in with anybody else uh so it just didn't occur to me that that was something that I was that that was something to do to try to fit in to try to be like other people but we we definitely were not from everything mm -hmm. from how we ate what we ate our school lunches good lord that's a whole that's a whole story i can't believe you mentioned school lunches because i was going to go on to i was going to go on to there are two things that i'm going to say here i'm going to unpack <laughs> pardon the pun um one was if you didn't have tv how did you know how to behave culturally because that's where that's where a lot of us back then learned how to mm. behave and how to conform and how to and perhaps you didn't yeah. and the second thing was the code of school lunches i was listening to and i know you're a big fan of anne lamott i yeah. was listening to her uh, audiobook bird by bird and where she uh, talks about writing and she teaches it she talks about teaching her students to look through a one inch frame and she said yeah. one of the exercises that's good for that is to talk about to write about school lunches and she has this whole uh, passage about how you know school lunches were the way that you signal to people that mm. your family was okay and mm. there were certain rules and, and ways that you had to conform from what was in the lunch to <laughs> how it was wrapped to how the carrots uh, were cut up so <sighs> talk so to me funny. about how that worked out when you're sitting next to other kids and your school lunches oh. do not conform not at all. It, you know, that's funny you say that about conforming. Maybe that's why I never have, because it didn't, it just was so, that was just the opposite of what was happening in our house. And very proudly, um, the school lunches, Bernadette, I have a whole story about that. <laughs> in the fourth grade, my, I mean, God, my mother was amazing. You know, she had five kids. She would make the lunches every morning in the brown paper bags. And they were 
weird. We'd have, <laughs> I mean, we would have chutney on very dark German brown bread. <laughs> the you tomato. Anne Lamott's first rule. She says oh, it yeah. has to, had to be white bread. That's right. That's right. Not at all. If your mother had made it, then you hid the fact. There, there is, there was anything with the word have to was not, was not in our family. You know, it's, it's, again, it's, I think it's so interesting. Not only was my father an immigrant, so he had no, there was no, you know, he came to this country when he was 23. So he was not trying to raise us. We were not being raised in Americana. And my mother, who was from the Midwest, left her family. Um, she was an only child and she left and moved to New York. So there was a very definitive, this is, <laughs> we are, you know, this is not what we are doing. It didn't even occur to me. So, so fourth grade, I was, I started, you know, I'd, I'd come into school and my lunches were to me inedible. <laughs> the chutney sandwiches. And not tradable the, either. Not, well, that is the, that was the problem. I got, I remember one lunch, I got a half a head of iceberg lettuce. That's, <laughs> I remember peeling off my lettuce and eating it. And there was nothing in my lunch that I could say, do you want to trade? Because that was something that would happen. So I started throwing my lunches away. There was a big trash can as you walked into school and I just would, I, I stopped looking in it and I would just dump it into the trash can. And so Mrs. Johnson, my fourth grade teacher, called my mother and said, and she must have, she must have asked me, why don't you have lunch? Because I just started begging off the other kids. <laughs> and I, I must have lied and said, my mother didn't pack a lunch for me, not realizing what was going to happen. So Mrs. Johnson called my mother and Mrs. Johnson was British. She was very, a very rigid British teacher. I loved her. And she was quite sharp with my mother and my mother was furious <laughs> because of course she packed me a lunch and here she's being called out for being a bad mother. And so Mrs. Johnson insisted that we have a meeting with my mother and me to talk about my lunches. Oh, my mother was so angry. <laughs> And Mrs. Johnson, you know, we're sitting in the meeting in the classroom and my mother said, well, of course I pack, I pack Anna lunch. And Mrs. Johnson said, have you ever asked her what she wants to eat? Oh, that almost made my mother blow her head open. She was so, <laughs> ask my fourth child what she wants to eat. Who has time for that? And so... She said, you know, she turned me to see things and said, what is it that you want to eat? And I said, I just want white bread with mustard and roast beef and some chips and a drink, just a normal lunch. So my mother went out because my mother is like the master ninja mind fox. She's so brilliant. She's so brilliant. She went out and bought Wonder Bread, the yellowest mustard she could get, the rarest roast beef she could find, <laughs> and made my lunch, you know, heaped the roast beef onto the white sandwich, which by the time you got to school was just all red from the blood that had seeped through the bread. <laughs> and yellow, it was just disgusting. And I lasted about three days and then I started throwing that lunch away. And we went back to the chutney sandwiches. Because my mother's a genius. 
Yeah. Well, that reminds me of every time I speak to you, I feel like two other people I wanted would have loved mm. to know were your parents. I would have yeah. loved to <laughs> have a conversation with both of them because they sound they just sound so independent and smart and creative and incredible. Yeah. And a lot of a lot of people would say it's hard to grow up in a in a home when your parents are talented and smart and creative and incredible. How do you make your mark as a child or mm. find your own identity when you're just surrounded by all of that brilliance? Mm. Yeah, they were they were wonderful. They were amazing people and and I felt the same way about my siblings. They were all just so smart and creative. And I spent a lot of my childhood reading. <laughs> I spent a lot of my childhood in my room reading, I think as a way to to not compare. And no wonder when I came out of my room I I had no idea what they were talking about <laughs> because I didn't realize that life was going on outside of my room without me. But yeah, they were amazing. But I I was the first child to leave. I had to find my footing on my own. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But what an mm -hmm. incredible examples of who I could be in the world. My mother used to always say to me, I, I thought about this too, and I had children. She used to always say to me, you're so wise, Anne. you're just so wise. And I believed her. And that's such a that was such a gift she gave me. It was such a gift because it didn't occur to me not to believe her. And that, that was, that was my identifier. Did she tell you that when you were small? How oh, old yeah. were you? My whole, my you? whole life, as long as I can remember. Yeah. Wow. I think that's really unusual for Do you? those times. I mean, I'm in my fifties too. And I, I don't believe that was how most people of that generation were raised to think they, to be, well, I was raised in Ireland, so perhaps it's a different cultural construct, mm. but to mm. be told that you are, you've got a gift, you've got mm. a talent, that you're special, that, you're, that your mother sees you, uh, I think yeah. there are a lot of people who never had that. And so it was such a gift because in my family, I wasn't smart in my family. I wasn't artistic in my family. And I knew that. And I, I felt that, um, I was in my family. I was, this is again, my viewpoint, but in my family, I was, my mother said I was wise. I'm not sure anybody else in my family felt that way, but <laughs> I, I heard that and I really internalized it. And in my family, I was always, I was always seeking out other people outside of my family. I was always meeting other people. We, whenever we traveled, I would just, I'd, you know, if we were on an airplane, I'd walk up and down the aisle and meet mm -hmm. other people. I would, everywhere we went, I would talk to other people. I was desperate for connection outside of my family. And actually, I want to tell you this story because 
you were talking about a big family. I felt my family was very small. We were, we were not, we, I mean, we were one of the few families that I knew of with a lot of siblings. Uh, but we all went to an elementary school called the foot school in New Haven, Connecticut, where I grew up and the head of school there, Mr. Perrine, his daughter, Catherine was in my class and his son, uh, Bill was in my brother's class and Catherine and, and they were, and we were all friends and Catherine would come back from, I remember one, I guess I now found out that it was just one weekend away, but she spent a weekend in Vermont with her cousins and she came mm. back and told us about it. And she had 13, she was one of 13 cousins and she loved spending time with them. And I don't remember her specifically talking about this, but I remember hearing about the Perrine's cousins and how fun it was and how much they enjoyed their time together. And it just sounded, I wanted that. And I remember very distinctly standing in front of my house with my sisters, we were playing outside. And I remember uh, we had a, an outdoor grill and a stone grill. And I remember jumping off of that and making the wish before I jumped and saying, I wish I was part of a big family with lots of cousins like the Perrines. And, you know, the punchline to that story is that I married Bill Perrine. And now all those cousins are part <laughs> of my family. But yeah, I remember feeling that in my childhood, lonely in my family and just wanting connection everywhere I went. And I have to say that that was not something that they did to me. That's just how I felt. I was very mm -hmm. in my head, my whole childhood. Let's segue to you going away to college. And I would have loved to have been your best friend in college. <laughs> <laughs> I never went to college, so I don't know what the college experience is like, but I would love to have known you in college. So how did you, what did you do with all that wisdom and curiosity? It would have been so much more fun with you, Bernadette. It would have been <laughs> such a better experience with you there. Uh, did, did you feel like you fit in there? What did you do no, with all those questions? That wasn't, no? Yeah, that was, that was an interesting time. I, I was a very, I was a terrible student. I, I had a really interesting high school experience where I found literature. I had a wonderful, wonderful English teacher, Mr. Hungerford, Tom Hungerford. And he, I went to an all girls boarding school and he, I took amazing literature classes with him mm. and in his department um, from all over the world, literature from everywhere. And that was wonderful. And we talked a lot and dug in deep a lot. And I definitely was encouraged to be uh, opinionated and debate and think mm. deeply. And that was really wonderful. And when I went to college, but, but other than that, I, I, my grades were terrible. Uh, just terrible. And I, I went to, I ended up in college in Wisconsin. I had never seen it until the day I mm -hmm. started school, school there. And it was, it's a great place. I, what was interesting about it was I, it was small enough that I could really make a connection with my professors. And so I ended up, I think the thing that I, I think back most 
strongly to is uh, I took some wonderful uh, sociology classes there and got close to my sociology professor, Marlon May. I took every law class I could, and I ended up doing a reaching out to the local police department while I was in college and doing a ride along program with them where I sat in the police car mm. a couple of times and drove around with them. And that was really interesting. What was the impetus for that? Because we're talking about somebody here who you said you were the person, you were the kid who liked to stay in your room and read and you didn't fit in and then you went to college. Oh, and you were also the person who remembers, so she doesn't remember anything about school, but she's named every one of her teachers by name. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, so you had a lot of incredible teachers who you had a lot of respect for. And then I, and then yeah. you go to college and what was the impetus for doing for this? Yeah, I well, first of all, I did I had wonderful adults in my life. Um, really my whole life. Um extraordinary. I wanted to just go back to that thing where you said I didn't fit in and I was in my room. That is true, but I always expressed myself either verbally, which is why I think I was kind of a, you know, I always felt like a misfit in my family because I was very honest and vocal about what I was experiencing and what I was seeing. And it was a lot. And I also expressed myself in the way I dressed. I was, I was, I had no problem be, being or looking different. I really liked that. So mm. um, I I wasn't trying to fit in um, mm. and kind of impatient with people who were because I just didn't, that wasn't the part of people that I was interested in. I wasn't interested in the surface stuff. I was really interested in what was underneath it. And so I was, I should be really honest about this. I was interested about what was happening underneath for me. So that's mm -hmm. what drew me to other people. Mm -hmm. um, and so law had been, I think when I was, I was quite young and one of the adults that was uh, in my life that had come, uh, that, that was um, friends of my parents, um, this group of adults that I felt like was my family, he loved to, get into it with me. I loved a debate with him. And I remember him saying to me, you like to talk and you like to argue, you should be an attorney. Mm -hmm. And it stuck with me when I was quite young. I said, okay, well, if that's something you see as an adult that I do well, I'll do that. And mm -hmm. so law was always something I was interested in and justice. And I don't know that I knew that that's what it was then, but the idea that there was not everything was the same for everybody mm. was something I saw and didn't understand. I didn't understand why things worked the way they did. And that idea that it's, this is the way it should be, it just didn't enter my brain. So, cause it's just not how I was raised. So I was always, I was always questioning why they were the way they were. So law, What's, I think. Can you give me an example of something you saw? like an injustice that mm. you, you just felt strongly about. Hmm. I don't know where that came from. 
but I guess I had a a righteous indignation of fairness. I don't I don't know where that came from. But I really pursued it in college, the ride along program. And then I ended up as an, this was kind of nuts, but in my junior year, just sort of blindly took a, an internship, took a semester off and went to DC, Washington DC and became for the term an investigator with the public defender's office in Washington DC. And I worked for two attorneys who represented juvenile clients. Mm. So you you brought your curiosity and your empathy to that work. Mm. And my righteous indignation. And your I was righteous on fire. Indignation, yeah. <laughs> as we talked about the fire that yeah. the fire that lights you up, the spark that lights you up. Yeah. That is that is you. Mm. You're all spark and light. Mm. And now I know that you're taking that, those experiences and that passion in the wake of some horrendous events that happened in your country last year. And, and you, you're going to do something about that. So do you want to talk to me about the righteous indignation that was sparked in you that day? I went to law school after college and then raised my kids for a while and, um, and then went to work and became a defense attorney for the poor. I was a private attorney, but I took public defense cases and loved it. Absolutely loved it. Loved it. Felt you know, so that kind of public service, that paying attention to an homage to something bigger than myself was fulfilled and was present and, and it, it, it fed that fire. Um, and then I, for a variety of reasons, I ended up much to my surprise after about 10 years or so shifting into coaching. And I went through a coaching, a year long intensive coaching program. And it just lit me up. It just lit me up. It shone a light in all, in all of me. And that fire turned into light and it changed my life. And so I left law in order to coach. And mm. it was an incredible, powerful, wonderful experience. And I loved it as much as I loved law. And it fed me in a new way. When George Floyd was murdered, you know, he was not, he, he was not the first. <laughs> there was a long line of people and has always been in our country of black men uh, being killed by law enforcement. And I, you know, I had always, I felt that I had, you know, I had always felt like I had been in that fight. But when George Floyd was murdered, I had stepped away from the fight 
because I was coaching. And there was something in that moment that made me say, I have to get back in the fight. I just have to get back in the fight. That rage came back, that fire came back. And I really, I, I thought for a few weeks about reinstating my law license and going back into the trenches and fighting. And somebody posted a question, a woman posted in my coaching, uh, in our coaching online coaching forum and said, what if every law enforcement officer went through coach training like we did? What would shift for the community if every law enforcement officer had access to coaching and had undergone the kind of transformation that we did in our coaching program? And it made my head explode, my heart explode. And I thought that, that is, and I didn't articulate this at the time, but that to me felt like all that fire and all that light at once. And I mm. thought that that's not something I want to do. That's something I am called to do. And I can use my experience as a former defense attorney and my transformation as a coach. And I can, I can fight this battle with fire and light. And so that's what I'm focusing on. And this podcast is part of that journey, I think. Yeah. Yeah. This, one of the things that was really amazing to me was in the wake of that, I started really, well, first of all, it, the big wake up call for me, which started before was that in COVID, it turns out that we can stop the world and pay attention to something. Mm -hmm. All this bullshit mm -hmm. about how, well, this is the way it is, or it can never change, or that's just too big to change. It turns out that's all nonsense. It's just, we don't want to. <laughs> and mm -hmm. COVID absolutely revealed that because if the entire world could stop for a minute and think about how to combat a worldwide virus, then the world can stop and think about how to combat racism or climate change or any of these things that feels too big and too overwhelming, but which we're all just too afraid to mm -hmm. change. So that was my big that my first big wake up call and it made me mad as hell. <laughs> and then with George Floyd being killed, it was, if we can all stop and pay attention, then we can all do something. And what amazed me was when I looked around, who was doing what and how they were doing it. And one of the things that just blew me away was there were two examples. One was, was before, you know, was, was right as the pandemic hit, there was a, a, 
man named by the name of Isaac Boots, who was a personal trainer to the stars, a former dancer. And he started going on Instagram and doing his workouts on Instagram for free. Big personality, fun. And he, um, instead of asking for money, he said, I'm doing this anyway, but if you'd like to pay, donate to No Kids Hungry. He grew up poor in Hawaii and he said, just donate to them. I don't need the money. I'm doing this anyway, just donate to them. And I think he had, you know, a goal of making, I don't know, some thousand dollars or something. He's raised over a million and a half dollars for No Kids Hungry. And it was, it was amazing to watch that, how just showing up and doing the thing that you do anyway, mm. but doing it with intention and thinking about it in a different way, just being creative about how you present it could do such good in the world. So that was the first seed. And then after George Floyd was murdered, uh, Anderson Pack is a, is a an artist and he wrote a song called Lockdown. And it's a, it's a protest song and it's about protesting in the lockdown. And it's an amazing song. He's an, he's an amazing musician. I'm a huge, huge fan. And I listened to that song over and over and over again, as I thought and protested and thought about what to do. And, you know, I'd work out to that song. I'd clean to that song. I'd cook to that song. I'd work to that song. And I, I thought it's a great song and it's a protest song. And I thought, how is it possible that I am dancing <laughs> and mm. singing and protesting at the same time? How is it possible to be this filled with joy and anger at the same time? And it really was amazing to me because I thought, if he can do that, how can I do that? how can I show up being who I am and do the thing I'm doing and be that on fire and that in love at the same time? What is that dance? <laughs> how do I do that? And um, it was really like the coin dropping for me was, yeah, think about these things outside of the way you've always thought about them this is where that creativity can come in. And even, you know, where is there an opportunity to combine these two things? And so the, the podcast, the podcast came out of that because I started paying attention to leadership, leadership mm -hmm. that just doesn't always look like the way I think I thought of leadership, but you know, what are, how are you leading yourself? How are you showing up to things? And how do you stay alive to it? How do you stay alive to it when it's hard, when it's lonely? How do you go from getting through something to really living through it? I think that's what is so fascinating to me. When you are, when I am doing something or I see people who are doing things that not everybody else is doing, it can be lonely. It can be really hard to stay in that space. That's what I'm so interested about. How do you make that energetic enough to keep showing up to it?
I love though that you're painting these pictures of juxtapositions. Yeah. In yeah. in everything that you talk about. The fire and the light and uh the the anger and the indignation and the joy and holding mm. those two things at the same time. And don't we all do that? It's an and all the time. Mm. It's the dance. Yeah. And you're so good at the dance of fire and light and roach. <laughs> you're so good. Well, I don't, I don't, I don't feel that I, I am all the time, but I will say that I learned so much from you and from the other coaches in the story skills workshop, Bernadette, because that's where I saw, I mean, that was a huge change for me as well, because I was able to see how i mean we were in we were coaching in the story skills workshop when george floyd was murdered mm -hmm. and through covid and it was amazing to me to see how first of all how connected we could be virtually how helping people see their stories could really transform people could help them be themselves most deeply. And also, and this is where, you know, the humility that I have gained over the years, and for sure, more in the last few years, recognizing that rage is not enough. <laughs> being direct is not enough <laughs> being that that combination that's where i saw that combination of fire and light working bernadette mm -hmm. because you never you never asked me to be anyone but myself in that workshop and i saw how using using I guess I want to say that light, how I could shine a light for people and how much more effective that was than the way I had been communicating before, which was just to be directive or instructive or judgmental. Mm. You know, that was the big thing that I shifted out of in coaching was I went, you know, the, the fire is great, but it, it's a lot of judgment. And that's okay. <laughs> and the light is great. And it's no judgment. And that's okay. And using those two things appropriately <laughs> is mm. much more powerful mm. than just one or the other. It was amazing to have that example. And you do it so well, Anne. You're such a, a great coach and a great advocate for for other people when when they wait when they can't see the light in themselves. Mm. Well, thank you. 
So what's your, let's, let's wrap up by thinking about your hopes and dreams for the fire and light and the spark that this podcast is going to create in the world. Well, I think you and I have talked about this. I think the real reason I started this podcast was because I'm trying to do something that's really hard. <laughs> and I want to know that I'm not alone. Mm. And I want to talk to other people who are showing up and dancing and feel inspired and in company of them. Mm. I mean, really, honestly, <laughs> I have an unachievable goal in my lifetime, which is to end racism. I don't, it's not, but it's not something I can solve. And it is one of those things that feels impossible, but I know it's possible. If it's possible that we can stop the world and pay attention, mm. then it's possible that we can eradicate this virus as well. Mm. And you know what I love? I love that you're showing up to try, even if you never live to see it, you're planting the acorn that's going to grow into the tree that maybe you won't sit under the shade of. I have to try. I can't ask anyone else to try for me. I can't ask anyone else. I can't hope. I can't hope. I have to try. Beautiful. Thank you for spending this hour with me and um, arms around you. I want to give you a big hug and one day we will. <laughs> one day we will. When the world opens up, we're we're going to meet each other and breathe the same air. Mm. And I can't wait. I can't and wait. I can't wait for all the wonderful things that you're going to do in the world and to hear more about the leadership of the people who are showing up to your podcast. Thanks, Anne. Thank you, Bernadette. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to How I Live Through This. I really appreciate it and certainly don't take it for granted. My goal for this podcast is to get support where it's needed. If you're so moved, please check out the organizations mentioned by my guest and consider how you might assist. Rating and reviewing How I Live Through This will also help amplify these heart-centered leaders striving to make equitable change in the world. Thanks so much. <laughs>